everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my colleague, Professor Louise Darsons. Hi, Louise. Hi, Stephanie. Um, and Louise is a professor of English in the English department here at Macquarie and she specialises in medieval literature. So um, I brought her into the studio today in order to talk about probably the, the big guy of medieval literature, the, the one that everyone knows of, the dude that everyone should, should read, and that's Geoffrey Chaucer. Yep. He... Uh, Medieval English literature. Medieval yeah. English literature. <laughs> sorry, there are sorry, big sorry, dudes sorry. In there, other, there are other and big dudes. And some good women. <laughs> and some very good women. Yeah. So let's yeah. start with Louise. Who was Chaucer? Oh, Geoffrey Chaucer. Well, it depends on the angle that you approach Chaucer from. So in his own lifetime, he was a, a man of many parts. He yes. was uh, <laughs> something that's kind of unimaginable to us today, which is a, a senior bu bureaucrat who is also a, a literary vanguard of his <laughs> yeah. time. So he, yeah, so he, a combination we don't imagine today, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was a he was a. Um, it was a I can't remember if it's 1432 or 14, uh, 14 so I'll start again, 1342 or 1343 when he was born, but he was uh, the son of a kind of uh, a family that was on its way up. So his father was a vintner. He, so he was kind of coming from the mercantile classes, but he was somebody whose career took him really up into, you know, uh, into a royal circle. So he was somebody who... Um, documents show certainly had the, the, the favour and the patronage and uh, the interest of um, royalty at the time, but he was also part of this kind of bureaucratic slash intellectual vanguard uh, of London, the Chancery, and so he was uh, and became um, sort of later into his career a very senior bureaucrat, mm -hmm. um, very significant powers. And so, yeah, he was kind of depending on which sort of aspect of him yeah. You, you want to emphasise he was sort of all of those things, though, at, at once. Was he a spy? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure about that. Okay, because he... I have read suggestions along those lines, but I wasn't sure if that was people just looking for sexy things. Look, I, I mean, I'm... I'm I know his writing better than I know his life, I have right. to say. Yeah. And so, I mean, he is somebody who... Um, you know, he he was involved in diplomatic missions, yeah, and um, you know, to to and went to places like Italy, etc., where let's say intelligence gathering <laughs> might it? have been yeah, part yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. somebody with more expertise in his um, biography might be able to answer that question. But he certainly went on diplomatic missions yeah. and was involved in, you know, um, activities that could have involved <laughs> the bringing back of information. Yeah. Okay, well, let's focus on Chaucer mm -hmm. the writer mm -hmm. and not Chaucer the bureaucrat. What are some of his major works? Well, I guess the, the text for which he is best known is, uh, are the Canterbury Tales. And mm -hmm. so that's, um, shall I talk a little bit about yeah, what sure. they were? In yeah, case yeah, yeah. some people are, are, are unfamiliar with them. The, the name of them, often people have heard of the Canterbury Tales. And back in the day, people used to study maybe one Canterbury Tale mm -hmm. for the HSC, etc. So some people go in and do it at university. And it's a, it's a collection of stories. It's, it's part of a, a genre um, that we call sort of frame tales. And so it was um, a collection of stories um, framed by sort of an overarching story, which is um, that of a group of, of pilgrims mm -hmm. who are going to um, Canterbury, to the cathedral at Canterbury, um, on pilgrimage together. And the premise of the Canterbury Tales is that each of them tells a story basically in order to get a little hot dinner prize. And <laughs> um, and so they're uh, basically the, the pilgrims represent a group that, that comes from the cross-section 
of medieval English society. There's kind of clerical people, ecclesiastical people. There's people from the upper classes, the the middle classes, and some characters who are from what we call, you know, we call the lower classes. That's not that's a little bit of an anachronistic description, but mm. they're coming from all of what were called the estates of medieval society, and then out of that come these tales that you know they tell, and. Um, it's an inc- well. It seems to be an incomplete text. Mm-hmm. It's um, one where you've got what, sort of twenty nine pilgrims, and they're all meant to tell about four tales each. But actually, there are only twenty four tales in the Canterbury Tales. So um, either that's because Chaucer died before he completed them, or he just didn't go back and rewrite that bored. section. Yeah. <laughs> he got bored. Yeah. Um, so there's that one. He, look, he he also wrote. Um, I think another one of his very kind of admired texts is his Troilus and Crusade. Mm. Um, the story of Troilus and Cressida, people are familiar with as part of the larger Troy story. Um, Shakespeare also did his version of the story. Um, and Chaucer was very influenced also by Italian writers like Boccaccio and, and their take on the story. And so um, that's another very famous one of his. He wrote um, the one the text of his, and I know we've sort of discussed mm. these a little bit, he also um, was an extremely accomplished practitioner of the dream vision. Mm. So he wrote um, three very, uh, well, probably actually four, but very three very famous um, dream texts, uh, the Book of the Duchess, which is his first text, and um, the House of Fame is another one, and um, the Parliament of Fowls, which is fantastic, mm. um, is what it sounds like. So it's a kind of <laughs> bunch of birds get together and make a decision about the marriage of some aristocratic um Hawks and <laughs> eagles, yeah, <laughs> and so he wrote those, and he wrote um, he wrote short poems as well, and he did some some quite well known sort of translations um, or partial translations of very famous um, continental texts like the Romance of the Rose, mm. very famous French texts. So, you know, he wrote some very large works. The, uh, the Book of the Duchess mm. is the one I fell in love with when yeah. I did it at uni. It's just an amazing, brilliant poem it's just an it's an astonishing poem and it's one I I have the privilege of teaching and I think um one of the things about it that it's it's so it's kind of an inaccessible text at first and I know Mm. the students when they first come across it um struggle a little bit with well first of all the language because Chaucerian language is you know so old now that that Mm. it does require you to do some work to understand it but also I think um you know, while they, while they the students initially experience that sense of alienation and confusion with it, there's so much immediacy in it as well. I think the opening section of the Book of the Duchess, to me, every time I read it, it is just like the description of insomnia mm. that it opens with is just so incredibly kind of proximate. You know, it feels like somebody could have written it today, just this person who's sitting there going, I don't know what's wrong I can't sleep. And then he goes through this um, process where he reads a book that gives him an idea about bargaining with the, the god of sleep and he finally gets to sleep and has his dream. But I think the thing about his dream, so the Book of the Duchess is um, a text that people believe is what's called an occasional text, so written for a particular occasion, which people think may have been the kind of, if you call it the inauguration or the kind of um I don't know what word to use for this. It's when people sort of, the unveiling maybe of yeah. the tomb of um, Blanche of Lancaster, who had been the wife of John of Gaunt, who was a significant um, patron of Chaucer's, a very important man. And um, people believe that the text is kind of written to commemorate um, Blanche's death and Blanche's memory. 
and um, it's the dreamer in it meets this man, the man in black, as you know, who's meant to be John of Gaunt, and um, helps him to kind of come to terms with his grief. So it's an amazing text about grieving. Yeah, that's what struck me when I first read it. I first studied it in first year, I think, from memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just, it surprised me that something so old was so immediate, as you say. Yeah, really fresh. I mean, it's it's a, because it is about grief and about the need to, to, you know, for want of a, it's a terrible word I'm going to use here, but I'm going to say it, closure. Yeah. (laughs) The need for closure, the need to reconcile, to recognize, to name grief. Hmm. And, and to move on to process it. it. Yeah. And so my students are really um, taken with it because I think in some respects it it's a text that's got a kind of a therapeutic shape yeah. to it, you know, and I think they're quite responsive to, to that um, reckoning with grief that the, that the text offers. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it's the one text. I mean, I've read more of him since, obviously, but that's the one text that really sticks in my mind. It's a great one to start with. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, so I wondered if you could talk more about, um, so we've talked a little bit about the Book of the Duchess and mm-hmm. a little bit about um, his other texts, but what makes Chaucer so important to English literature? Why is he the sort of central um, figure mm-hmm. in medieval English in the medieval English tradition and also in just in the literary canon more generally? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, that's a question that's partly about his value as a writer and also partly about his uptake. Because, yeah, I mean, he, was, right. a, he yeah. was a really, I mean, there's lots of evidence to show he was just a really respected and venerated figure in his own time, time and yeah. sort of immediately afterwards. So his, the sense of his importance as a writer is already it's there. Always there. Yeah. You know, with writers like Hocklave in the 15th century, he mm. obviously was a, a huge um, admirer of Chaucer. And so the kind of Chaucer mythology and the Chaucer kind of the valuing of Chaucer started very very early and so and and has continued I mean I think in his own time I mean the thing about that that what we ask of writers today is kind of different from what I think we ask of medieval writers and the the thing about Chaucer is that he he was definitely an innovator but he was also a a really sublime synthesizer Mm -hmm. and so there's that kind of combination with so many medieval authors of innovation within the framework of con- continuity. And, and we so, can see that even continuing through to Shakespeare, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. so you can say, and of course, Shakespeare availed himself of, of Chaucer. Chaucer's yeah, work. Right. Yeah, yes, so, exactly. So, <laughs> and I think with Chaucer, you know, you see the way in which he'll take, say, can coming back to the Book of the Duchess, he will take um, French poetry of the time mm. and he'll combine it, but he'll innovate on it as well. And he takes, um, in the Book of the Duchess, he takes a, a famous story, say, from Ovid, but he changes mm. the ending. Or he mm. lops the ending off, you know. And so he, you know, he takes stories from the continental tradition. And I think he was also somebody who, as a kind of a vanguard, you know, was was um, reading people or having access to texts like Boccaccio's texts, you know, these Italian kind of very cutting-edge Italian mm. writers, and bringing that back into English and Englishing it. Mm. And so he was somebody who I think... We treat him as an English writer, but I think that there's been a lot of, uh, in recent years, a lot of reevaluation of what that actually means because I think people are less interested in seeing him in relation to national tradition, I think, mm. these days and are beginning to try to think about him very much, um, like many other important writers of the time, as figures who were crossing over into different um, different literatures of mm. different, you know, and... and um, they were English writers, but they were English writers who were engaging so closely with Italian writing and with French, French writing. Yeah. And the thing about, I think, th- some great work that's being done on late medieval England that, again, I think it really speaks to how we think about Chaucer is 
really emphasizing it as a trilingual culture. Mm. You know, thinking about the way in which it was a culture that uh, in Chaucer's time was increasingly valuing the potential of English as a language to really do fantastic, exciting and uh, sophisticated literary things. But it was still a culture very engaged with, you know, um, Francophonie. It was, you know, still well, the language French of the court was French, culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and I'm, and um, also, of course, Latin as, yeah, that's as right, the language yeah. of the church. And so, and the thing about, I mean, it's interesting that Chaucer's career, I think, in relation to the English language, comes at such an interesting kind of juncture because if you think of the Book of the Duchess as something being written. You know, people say something between, you know, sort of the late, maybe 1368, 1372. So it's mm. kind of sitting in those late 1360s. And you think of 1362 as the first year that the parliament opens in English. Mm. And so it is a period where the possibilities of English as a language of bureaucracy, a language of literature, mm. you know, is there's, there is a great momentum around that. But it's still very much a culture um, where different language, different literatures are still being consumed, different languages are being spoken. And so I think that sense of him as, you know, he had for, for so long he had this reputation, to come back to your question, as mm. the father of English. Yeah, you know, that's certainly and, how and, I was taught him, yeah. And, 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 that's a, and that was a very robust tradition of mm. Chaucer reception, as we mm. might call it, you know, the way in which Chaucer was understood after his own lifetime. And I think, you know, you have people you know, like Dryden calling him, you know, the, the, the well of English undefiled, you know, and so he has this kind of reputation. And and it's not an undeserved reputation, but it's a partial. Yeah. I think these days it's seen as kind of part of what his reputation should be about. But for, for a long time there was a sense in which he was seen as kind of spawning all sorts of things that were seen as quintessentially English. Mm. But the weird thing is, at the same time as you've got people talking about him as being this very quintessentially English teacher, uh, English figure, he was also seen as somebody who was kind of adulterating English. So when you look at his 18th century reception, it's it's interesting. I wrote a book called Comic Medievalism um, in, that came out in 2014. And I've got a chapter in that on the 18th century reception of Chaucer and looking at him in that kind of culture of wit and mm. how it was he was understood mm. um, as a humorist and also as somebody, you know, um, who set the shape of English in, in, in all kinds of ways. And he uh, was, on the one hand, seen as this kind of figure who was quintessentially English, the font, the undefiled font of the English language. But you'd also find commentary saying, oh, he introduced all that... Italian in and and French and he you know and he he was yeah. um, a kind of an adulterator of English and um, then there'd be people who would see him as this kind of um, really sort of um, quintessential figure of English humour that mm. he sort of shaped English humour and English the kind of English sense of humour and then other people who saw him as this kind of bawdy embarrassment you know who mm. just could you know for whom you know, nothing was too low. <laughs> and so There are yeah, fart yeah. jokes. Yeah, fart jokes, you know, <laughs> people are, you know, doing unspeakable things out of windows yeah, at each other <laughs> and to each other. And so he kind of had a mixed reputation, I think. He was venerated, but he was also, he also made people uncomfortable who wanted to see the English tradition as something that was a refined tradition. Yeah, yeah I've been doing some work on Tudor literature and it's, mm. it's, um, that's 150 years later, yeah. but it's you still see that the influence of Italian and French forms. It's not. A, yeah. it, I don't think we can separate out the English tradition to everything else in That's the way right. that has been done in the past, because you know it's all about it's all a, a kind of continental 
really, really bilingual, really trilingual, as you say, tradition. Yeah. 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 And I think people have that kind of sense now of just thinking of these cultures as sort of intersecting yeah. with each other at the same time as they are building a sense of national consciousness. Mm. There yeah. is still a very sort of significant um, exchange. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm. Um, so you've we we had a little discussion about what we were going to talk about today, and you mentioned his anti-clericism, um, clericalism. Sorry, mm. um, did you want to talk about about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that it's one of those things. Again, I might sort of start with my teaching for yeah. a, a minute to sort of say that one of the kinds of things that often gets students um, involved and interested in Chaucer, I think. Um, particularly when we look at the Canterbury Tales, is that when students are walking in with a perception of the Middle Ages as being mm. a sort of, um, you know, particularly pre, sort of pre-Reformation sort yeah. of, you know, um, culture, um, as being sort of unanimously and uncritically sort of religious. Mm. And um, and one of the sort of really interesting awakenings they have sometimes when, they, when they're reading the Canterbury Tales is that sense of the kind of irreverence and the critique directed at the church as an institution, you mm. know, and, and certainly Chaucer was was far from alone in doing that. The other yeah. writers like um, William Langland at the time also, you know, there were all kinds of other people also making these critiques. Um, and at the time that Chaucer was writing um, the Canterbury Tales, England is having its first, first, you know, for a good millennium, its first significant sort of heresy, mm. which is the Lollard heresy yeah. kind of proto sort of a Reformation sort of style heresy. And um, and so there is a kind of a climate of mm. questioning the church, particularly, I think, the church as an institution associated with greed. And so, you know... Selling some of, of indulgences and all of that yeah, sort of stuff. And so, yeah, and so, so some of the most memorable um, characters or memorable figures and pilgrims in the Canterbury Tales and also kind of tellers of, of the tales are these clerical figures, you know, yeah. who are completely corrupt. <laughs> sort of, you know, I think one of the ones that people absolutely love, and I know students are always very responsive to, is the pardoner. You know, mm. first of all, they don't know what a pardoner Pardoners, is and what yeah. a pardon is. And then once you've explained that, they're like, what, these people went around, mm. you know, kind of buying their way out of heaven and this guy, you know, these people are selling, you know, pig's bones or pillowcases as the Virgin Mary's veil. Like, who were these people? And and um, what kind of culture was this where you could exchange money to... Um, Get a good seat in heaven. You know, get, get a few thousand years out of purgatory, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. And so I think that um, that kind of sense of the church as a, uh, you know, as a kind of, well, it's a religious institution, but an institution that has a kind of a, a, a secular way of, yeah. you know, kind of, uh, of, of uh, or certainly it's an institution, basically, and institutions deal with the um, the earthly. And, yes. and so um, that kind of late medieval querying of, of the church and kind of poking fun at it, which, of course, Boccaccio had done in his Decameron, yeah. you know, in a very kind of extreme way at yeah. times. Um, it's, so there were precedents for Chaucer doing it. But I think that um, that anti-clericalism is something that people really enjoy. And he gets mm. some fantastic humour out of it too mm. and kind of satire, you know. So there's a very kind of um, satiric portraits. And, and, and portraits also all kind of incidents in the uh, Canterbury Tales where you've got the different kind of... Um, uh, orders and the different sorts of um, officials within the church having a go at each other in their tales, you know, where friars will have a go at the monks and the monks will have a go at the friars. And so you've got all these kinds of little struggles and um, and um, insults being traded through through the tales as well. And so there's a real kind of um, humour mm. in the anti-clericalism, but also some very serious 
critique. Yeah, and as you say, it really complicates our understanding of the of the Middle Ages as this, you know, unquestioning time where everyone was super religious and didn't think anything of it and then the Reformation just happened all that all of a sudden out of nowhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of sense I think with the students also one of the one of the great things about that kind of moment is that you know, at the risk of sounding very ahistorical, they have that kind of moment of going, so people question things then too, yeah, yeah, just yeah. like we do. Yeah, like, like, oh, yeah, they're you know, just like us. Yeah. People didn't just sort of wake up and, and, and never have a critical or questioning thought about their lives. You know, people, <laughs> people did you know, think, and, yeah. and when people saw corruption and when people experienced the impact of corruption, you know, yeah. of course they recognised yeah. it. You yeah, know, and, so, and they thought about it. Yeah, yeah they yeah. thought about it, yeah. All right, so let's talk about some of the more controversial parts of yes. Chaucer's legacy because yeah. it's not all roses when we talk about Chaucer. So, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, Chaucer, one of the one of the Canterbury tales that I think um, some fantastic work has been done on this tale, actually, and it's one of those ones where um, the analysis that's been done of the, of, of the Prioress's tale, which is the one I have in mind, the Prioress's tale from the Canterbury Tales, um, the work that's been done on it is about the tale itself, but also asking those kinds of questions around what do we do with literary figures whom we have revered and we've been raised to revere and, and see as, you know, the kind of the, the apex of yeah. what it is English literature can do. What do we do when we find um, ideological elements and kind of, well, racist, anti in this case, mm. anti-Semitic elements mm. um, that you know, make their legacy an uncomfortable one for us. And, one and that, that is has, such a pertinent you know, question today, isn't it's it? It's a really pertinent yeah. one. And I think um, I think that, you know, a number of my colleagues, you know, certainly my North American colleagues who I think are living through a very kind of divisive moment in their own history are really kind of thinking very hard about these texts as well. I mean, we all are, but I think mm. in some cases it feels very up close and, and personal for some of them. Um, I think that the, the Prioress's Tale, just to sort of, I won't, kind of give you a blow by blow of it but it rests on um this kind of ideological anti-semitic myth of the blood libel you know which is this kind of idea that people came up with or circulated that um jewish people um would kill christian children christian boys and use their blood for various sorts of rituals and these rituals anything from sort of perverse reenactments of the crucifixion through to making uh, bread for Passover, etc. And so there was this idea that, um, you know, they would sacrifice these children. And basically the Book of the Duchess is, uh, sorry, the Book of the Duchess, the Prioress's, Prioress's Tale, yeah. I beg your pardon, the Prioress's Tale is um, premised on this, you mm. know, is a story about that. And, um, and so there are those kinds of difficulties around what do you do? Do you say, well, look, he's a man of his time, you mm. know, people were anti-Semitic then, you know, England in the late Middle Ages has a very dark history of anti-Semitism, very dark history, and lots of people have written about it. I know um, one of my colleagues, um, Geraldine Heng, has recently, uh, is just, books just come out on race in the Middle Ages, and she's looked at, you know, the way the Jews were treated and understood in late medieval England and has argued that they, they were seen as a race, a kind of religiously inflected race. And so do we say Chaucer was a man of his time? Mm. Do we stand back and say, well, he participated in disseminating myths that harmed? Mm. You know, what do we do with that legacy? Uh, can we continue to teach him? And if we, I think 
it's our duty to continue to yeah. teach him, but to teach him not as some unadulterated, unadulterated figure who just rose above his times, mm. but to recognise the implication of his literature in those harms. Yeah, you know, it doesn't mean we can't read. The, I I am of the belief that we shouldn't stop reading people for that reason. It's probably easier when they're several hundred years dead and we don't have to worry about whether they're profiting yeah, 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 personally right. profiting from it, which is a live question with, yeah. with authors today, that if we know that they are, you know, uh, involved and perpetuate things that are very unpleasant and harmful, do we stop buying yeah. their books because then they don't make an income from yeah. their books. But, but Chaucer's, the quest, Chaucer has no estate. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not as live a yeah. question with somebody like Chaucer, but nevertheless it does raise that question of when we're reading these texts that are the so-called greats, the, you know, part of the mm. English canon, we have to recognise the, the value systems that they inherited and perpetuated mm. and ask the question of, you know, when we do the historical work around them, could this author have been more critical? Could mm. this author have actually pushed back on that? And did they choose not to, you know? And I think that that's certainly the case with the gender politics of Chaucer in particular. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you want to go on to gender? Yes, because that's a that's, mm. a, that's a very tricky legacy um, in Chaucer's case and a very mixed one, very, very yeah. mixed one. And I think uh, I was really intrigued to notice a website that has sprung up this year in relation to this. And, and, and maybe I should just sort of uh, back up for a second and just talk a little bit about this very controversial dimension of um, the way we understand Chaucer today, which is the infamous Cecily Champagne case, um, which all Chaucer scholars, particularly those interested in in Chaucer and women and gender, have to sort of at some point reckon with. And this is, for for people who aren't aware of this, um, this is uh, basically the Cecily Champagne case is something, it's a little bit of a mystery because we only have a very partial documentary sort of... um, um, evidence from it. Yeah. So basically what we have are some documents from 1380 and they are not a charge sheet so we don't have Chaucer being charged with rape. What we have is documents in which this woman Cecily Champagne releases Chaucer from basically this accusation of rape of this thing called raptus. raptus. Yeah. So <laughs> we have we have several layers of of things that we need to disentangle when we come across this. And I am not a legal expert. I'll just say I'm not a legal expert. I'm very interested in gender and Chaucer, so I'm coming at it from that angle. But uh, we have a few things that go on. So first of all, there is the whole kind of linguistic uh, difficulty around the question of um, raptus and this word raptus. So we have these three words in these documents, de raptu meo, okay? So Chaucer is being released from, you know, the the raptus of me, mean, yeah. so and that could mean this word raptus could mean um, it, it could mean abduction, mm-hmm. it could mean sort of expropriation if it's a kind of a, if it's it's in some interpretations it was a property crime, if it's a crime against the person it could mean um, you know um, abduction, or it could mean sexual crime a rape. Mm. And so the first kind of difficulty we have is disentangling what it means. And I think there's the assumption because it sounds like rape that it is rape. That it's, yeah. yeah. And the difficulty is that there are documents in the 14th century and legal historians have looked at these where there is that kind of semantic slippage, this slippage of meaning between, you know, uh, there's a document around Chaucer's own father 
where somebody had apparently abducted him and the word raptus is used. And so it can mean abduction. Mm. Um, but there's, there is a line of argument that, that um, certainly feminist historians, but not just feminist historians, also legal historians, put forward to say, well, it, it's probably when it's an adult female or a female involved, it, the, the contextual implication is rape. Is correct, yeah. So there's that first question of what is, being, what is the accusation here? Yeah. And then there's the kind of second layer of in, of questioning that people have around it then, which is, what is this document doing? What does this document mean? So we've got the linguistic question, what does raptus mean, and legal question. Then there's the question of, what is this document? So you, you have this document where she is releasing him from this accusation. And so Chaucer historians or Chaucer scholars again, have have really, really grappled with it and struggled with it. And some people feel very straightforwardly that it is a sign this document shows that Chaucer had probably raped this woman. And there's evidence to say that he had to raise a large sum of money quickly and that he made a significant financial reparation mm. to her. So um, some people feel that there's enough evidence to suggest that he had. Mm engaged in raptus, whether he abducted her or raped her, that he had perhaps done this thing. Then there's another kind of line, and you you see kind of Chaucer scholars, and people do feel very protective of Chaucer. It's hard not to. This is an author in whom you've invested all Mm. of this kind of interest, and and he is an extraordinary writer. And so there's this whole kind of question of, is this a document of a woman who has made a false accusation? Mm. So then there's the whole kind, because it's a, if we only have the kind of the release document, the retraction document, you know, there's then some people get themselves into very kind of um, uh, kind of anxious um, explanations around the idea that it was a false accusation and Chaucer couldn't have done it and didn't do it. And the question of why he pays her money is a tricky one in that. Mm, yeah. um, but, you know, that he might not have done that. Um, and so then there's that question. So there's the question of what Raptus meant the question of what the document is, is and what it's yeah. doing and what it can tell us. Mm. And again, very unresolved set of questions around that and scholars still work, working with it. And I've mentioned this website that it's just a website called De Raptu Mio, right? And, wow. and it's just cropped up this year and oh, I God. couldn't help but note that it cropped up in the same month that the Time's Up movement you know, started in Hollywood. Right, so, that wow. you, so even though What's people have been website? working, so it's just a website that gives you the documents. Right. Okay. It gives you a little bit of background into it. It yeah. doesn't solve the mystery. It's just presenting. Um, it information. gives you a, a, some scholarship. So it gives you a list of scholarly texts that you can pursue. It gives you the three documents and a little bit of contextualization. Right. It gives you the kind of dramatis personae. So it tells you a bit about Cecily Champagne and the little that's known about her. It tells you who Chaucer was. And it tells you who the witnesses around the um the release documents and you know who was involved in the kind of processing of mm. this stage of this uh claim or this um this case um so that's those are that so there's those two questions and then there's this third question of the legacy of Chaucer and what we want from him yeah you know and it's a very difficult question to answer and it's you know we're seeing these questions being asked in lifetime mm. with authors today you know just you know we know very is a very kind of raw moment that at the sydney writers festival you know two weeks ago we have i was you there know, you were there right I was there. okay we have those accusations against you Diaz. yep that's right so you yep. have this author in whom people have invested an incredible amount of um 
well, kind of hope, you know, as a, mm. as a writer of colour in the United States, as somebody speaking for Latinx communities, you know, mm. um, as somebody who had recently written his own, you know, his really profound of, kind of yeah. con- sort of, I've almost called it confessional, but I suppose not confessional. He's kind of a very personal document about his own rape mm. and um, having been raped, I should say. And so we have him accused of, you know, of non-consensual kind of um, not not um, rape, but you know, forcibly kissing somebody, somebody and yeah. and being sort of um, quite sort of misogynistic in certain encounters with 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 quite women aggressive, writers, aggressive, yeah. 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 And so we have this kind of difficulty of what do you happen when a, what do you do when a very beloved author mm. seems to have views and quite actively have them, yeah, and seem to have done things also that make their legacy for you very uncomfortable. And again, with yeah. Chaucer, it's a long way back historically, but he is a writer in whom people have invested a tremendous amount of um, value. and Invested their careers. You know? Invested their careers. And as feminist yeah. scholars, you know, the, he's such a contradictory figure because you have this really difficult case and you see people wanting to say, well, look, let's not hide from what this tells us. And others mm-hmm. saying, well, but also... We can't just, you know, we can't convict somebody on the basis. This is a circumstantial case, you know, we can't mm. convict Chaucer. But then people kind of go back to his texts, you know, because mm. we've got st- this unsolved mystery of the Cecily Champagne case. Um, I know probably where I sit in it. I think mm. I, I think we have to face up to uncomfortable truths, but I'm also prepared to say it's circumstantial and we people have not been able to solve it and, mm. and say, you know, we need to find another document that will yeah. solve it for us. But um I guess we then go back to his texts and his texts themselves are incredibly complex on the question of gender. Mm. You know, this is the man who gave us the wife of, of Bath. Bath. Exactly. Right? One of my favourite pieces of literature. And the wife yeah. of Bath's prologue is just such a fantastic piece of, I don't know, I want to say feminist literature. That's probably naughty of me. But I agree, a though. great character a, yeah. who, you know, she's got, had her five husbands and she tells a story about how she says, well, you know, she starts her prologue by saying, look, I might not have any authority, but I have experience, damn it, and I'm going to tell you about marriage. And my experience as a woman is enough for me to do that. Yep. And she tells this story, this prologue, you know, before she even gets to her tale, this prologue, which is actually a kind of prologue about her textual slash sexual abuse by her husband. Yeah. You know, she marries this, she's, you know, she's buried her husband. She's at her husband's funeral. She sees this young clerk with very nice legs called Jenkin. And next thing, he's her fifth husband. <laughs> and he loves to read her misogynist stories. She tells us, you know, she talks about how she has to, she sits there and he reads out of this book about all these awful, his book of wicked wives. <laughs> and then one day she just gets so sick of it. She rips a page out of the book. And he picks up the book and he smacks her across the ear with it and mm. he deafens her mm. in one ear. And so it's this fantastic literalization of the harm mm. of misogynist literature on a woman's body. And Chaucer gives us this. Mm. He gives us this amazing character. And I think it's and, a character that, again, like speaks across. We were talking about the Book of the Duchess and, you know, finding out that, you know, something written 700, 800 years ago could be so earthy and, and relatable yeah. on grief. Yeah. It's it's a text where you look at it and you're like, God, he's captured the woman's yeah. experience. As you know? a woman today, you yeah. read it and it feels extraordinarily immediate. It does. And she's a yeah. fantastic character. And then her tale is one in which a rapist 
is punished by having to go out for a year and come back and say, what is it that women most want? He has to learn <laughs> what women want, mm. what women are about. Mm. And he learns they want mastery. Yes. <laughs> it's the, but, but it's, it's a, you know, it's, so this is the fascinating thing. It starts with a story yeah. of a rapist who has to reckon with women's desire mm. and women's subjectivity. So how and do you, so how them, do you yeah. put together the Cecily Champagne case with the wife of Bath's tale and the wife of Bath as a character. You know, it's mm. it's such a conundrum. And so he, as a character, as an author, he presents us with a whole, I think this is why we keep going back and reading him and, and mm. working on him, is because he presents us with um, not just mysteries or, or, or conundra around his writing, but also what it is we want from writers. You've read a lot more of the Canterbury Tales than I have. And um, how... It, what do you think about his gender politics beyond the wife of Bath's tale? Well, again, it's a very it's a very kind of mixed mixed bag, sta- yeah. mixed bag because you know you'll get stories like the Clark's tale, which are about you know long the long suffering Griselda, you know, and, yeah. and who is rewarded for her suffering. Um, and then you get you know we've mentioned the wife of Bath. You then get the wives of the Fablio. So the Fablio are these kind of very famously bawdy stories that have come from. The French, you know, French, some from Italian, but the Fablio was a French genre. And these are these stories in which, you know, I've said, for instance, The Merchant's Tale is a, is, is a great one about, you know, this young woman who's basically put out to market, you know, married, marries this very old man. So she's May, he's January, which you know, tells you everything about the stage of life they're at. He's in winter, she's in spring. She, yeah. And, um, and, and basically, you know, the kind of, marital marketplaces and the, the kind of this, this arrangement wherein she becomes this man's property is totally ruptured by her infidelity so yeah. there's that kind of sense in which mm. we get these stories that at one level uh, you know can be read as misogynist literature there's a, definitely a reading but there's also a kind of a sense in which these women's kind of sexual exuberance exceeds and and, and kind of defies their husbands and mm. so and we get characters, something like, say, for instance, The Franklin's Tale, which is one I absolutely, I love The Franklin's Tale. And you have this female character, Dorrigan, who at one level is this kind of, this character who speaks with a certain degree of autonomy at quite important parts of the text. But by the time we get to the end of the text, it's kind of about these, the way these men kind of bargain for her and who is, you know, who out of the three, or well, there's three figures, but particularly two men, who her, her husband and this other figure, Aurelius, you know, who is it uh, who is kind of most most noble and therefore kind of the one most deserving? Mm. And so it turns into a kind of a text about men and their sort of levels of um, of, of kind of um, gentle, gentility. But at the same time, within this sort of sense of what you might call it, you know, if you were going to use literary or, or, or um gender theory you might call a homosocial text yeah. a text where that's about men that and the way yeah. men interact and etc you still do have this very kind of resonant female mm. character and so it's a kind of a the, the canterbury tales are a very mixed bag on the question of of mm. gender well, I mean, again, there's a nice connection with Shakespeare. It's very hard working all this out with Shakespeare as well. Obviously, Absolutely. we don't have the real life 
problems that we have with with Chaucer. But again, it's really hard to figure out where this all stands because it doesn't seem to be one thing or another. It's very complex. Yeah, and you know, Troilus is uh, uh, Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, yes. and and of course, um, Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade. They have the you know, yeah. Crusade's a great character, and yeah. and Cressida as well, mm. and they they have an awful. Mm. ending to their stories but there is that kind of sense in which they are reckoning with very limited choices as women yeah and they make decisions with this very kind of clear-eyed cynical is not the right word but very kind of pragmatic, pragmatic think, yeah clear-eyed sense that the limitations yeah. of what they have available to them you know and so there is that kind of sense of you know on the one hand you can definitely read these texts um, in terms of say what happens to the female characters mm. if you want to read them in terms of how their stories end then you could say well these are sexist stories that yeah. have condemned their female ends. characters yeah, yeah, yeah. to these ends but there's so much complexity along the way with these characters really coming to grips these female characters coming to terms with limited options mm. that always opens the text up a bit more and the ending isn't the only way you can read these texts. It's not the only entry point into thinking about gender. Is that the way you frame all of this complexity around gender politics for your students? You were talking about, you know, the question of whether we still teach mm. these people, and obviously we do. Is is that something you explicitly frame for your students? I think so. I think mm. so, partly because I think, you know, one of the things when you walk into a classroom, and you would know this from, from teaching Shakespeare as well, is that you are often... Um, dealing with students having a kind of fairly um, black and white sort of baggage around what they yeah. think the Middle Ages was. And so I obviously have a pretty strong commitment to complicating that, the yeah. period for yeah. them and saying, well, you know, we could look back and go everybody was simplistic and religious and obedient yeah. and and women obeyed their husbands and, and husbands beat their wives. Yeah. And, you know, no doubt these things happened, you yeah. know, but... but um, that's not the whole story you know yeah. I, so I have a pretty strong commitment to complicating the period mm. for them um, gender is just one way of doing that there are all sorts of things to do with race and mm. and, and um, culture of other forms of uh, aspects of culture as well but um, so yes I think that is really one of the things I want them to do is to mm. sort of say well you know we're not the first people to discover the complexity of gender we might have a certain language around it mm. But people were always exploring gender mm. and sexual politics, as we call them today, sexual dynamics, in mm. ways that that you know have a kind of a, an immediacy for us because they're com they're complex. Mm. All right, yeah. let's talk. Let's talk about um, Chaucer's cultural afterlife. Mm -hmm. So you've done quite a lot of work around this, yeah. around the way that Chaucer's been taken up by various people. As you say, his reputation was pretty much made in his lifetime, so mm. he's been taken up by or everyone since yes, yes. Um, in various ways. Um, what, do you, what do you think are some of the most kind of interesting currents in the way we sort of think about Chaucer and have thought about Chaucer since, you know, 14th century till today? Yeah, look, I, I think that I, we probably sort of started to, yeah. to talk about yeah, but, those. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as I mentioned, he had a, uh, there was a period there where I think people were concentrating very much on what they thought he could tell them about English, English yeah. as a language, you know, and its possibilities. And, and there was that kind of sense in which he was seen as the sort of the father of English. I mentioned before that um, I think there was a kind of a, a concentration on what what he could tell us about, the, you know, the uniqueness of English humour. And, and it's something that started, you know, like as early as in the 18th century, you've got a kind of a real... Um, analysis of of his different modes of humor but it goes right through to today and one of the examples i just have to talk about because i love it so very much and and i always 
I get a chance to write about it, I always do, which is going through to really recent times, you know, the comedian um, Bill Bailey mm. has this fantastic clip, which people can watch on YouTube, and I just commend it to anybody who's listening who hasn't seen it before, which is called Pub Gaga, so pub gag. Mm. And he does this pub gag that's basically in the style of Chaucer. And it's this fantastic just kind of story about what almost like kind of football hooligans. But it's also very clearly based on the pardoner's tale. Mm. And he's to the point where he's even using language from, oh, well, wow. actually from the yeah. pardoner's prologue. So he has this bit where he talks about, it's a, in, in the pardoner's prologue. The pardoner, by the way, he's this, he boasts in his prologue about, basically about how he goes around. He's got one, he's got a, um, one sermon that he uses you know how um he just uh, trots out whenever yeah, he trots out and, and and he just goes around and he talks about how he's able to get money from people and at one point he talks about how he uses his voice and he sort of says you know it's ruined like a bell yeah <laughs> I, I, I kind of my voice rings out like a bell and then when bill bailey does his version of of basically his bawdy version of, of uh, the pardoner's tale or the first section of the pardoner's tale he um talks about them eating scotch eggs, ruined like a ball. <laughs> so he reuses yeah. language, actually language from directly, it. So he yeah. clearly knows at least at least the partner's tale and possibly more. He's very, very clever. And and he, what he does is he takes this Chaucerian legacy and he suggests that it's kind of got this continuity through English humour. And he even says at one point, you know, um, it was like a tale from Dick Emery. So he <laughs> refers to Dick Emery, that kind yeah. of, you know, 1960s, 1970s, kind of quite bawdy um, comedian. And so he's kind of suggesting there's this kind of long legacy of which he is, you know, an inheritor. And um, and so that's a fantastic example. But there have been other, other sort of people in Chaucer's Afterlife who've done some very, very interesting things with him. And I'm thinking in particular of um, the filmmaker um, Pier Paolo Pasolini, mm-hmm who um, in the early 1970s made a trilogy of medieval films called The Trilogy of Life. And the first one was based on Boccaccio's Decameron, and the third one was based on um, The Thousand and One Nights, and the middle one was based on The Canterbury Tales. And he just does a small selection of The Canterbury Tales. But he uses it in such an interesting way, very much to do with what he, as um, a filmmaker, was concerned with. Um, So he sees Chaucer, he, he basically... Gives us he, he's very interested in the bore details from from Chaucer in particular the fablio and he a number of the texts a number of the sort of short um, tales that he that he puts into his film are those tales, but he he puts Chaucer's tales into this very kind of interesting context. So he, what he's really interested in is the idea that the Middle Ages represented some kind of period of almost kind of utopian sexual freedom, which was just coming under attack mm. from the church and he actually interweaves his own moments of course he was a you know famous um out kind of homosexual mm. figure in his time and he has some moments where he has basically homosexual clerical sex happening and mm. then these characters are persecuted and basically um executed in the story which isn't in, in yeah. Chaucer's text but he sees this kind of moment at which Chaucer's writing as this moment where all of this kind of primordial sexual freedom mm. is um, being shut down. That's interesting. And so it's, a, yeah. it's at one level a very idiosyncratic mm. interpretation of Chaucer, but it also relies on this idea of Chaucer as channeling some sort of 
medieval, although he's just at the very end of that. So he's channeling it, but also signaling its kind of death knell. This kind of idea of um, of kind of free, pre-modern sort of um, animal life mm. that people kind of engaged in. That's yeah. going to be shut down by the early modern. That's yeah. then kind of shut down by the modern. And he sees Chaucer as a kind of a figure on the cusp. Boccaccio who, of course, was a very big influence on Chaucer and who was the subject of the first film, the, the, the Decameron, the first in the trilogy. There's very, that's very much a kind of an you know um, idyllic, playful kind of pre-modern sex fest, mm. basically. And then the Chaucer film is much darker, mm. actually, much darker than uh, the, Canib- than the uh, Decameron. Mm. And it's one in which he, he signals this kind of free world of sexuality, but also that kind of it's sense time, that yeah. it was coming to an end. Yeah. So when we talked about this, you, you sent me some things that you wanted to talk about, and you mentioned something that maybe raised my eyebrows at my desk, which was his porn legacy. <laughs> Chaucer's porn legacy. Cha- Chaucer's porn well, legacy, which is not something I thought I would say on this podcast, but now I've said it. Well, Please, that's why I've mentioned yes, Pasolini, I'm... because it, it, it's interesting, the kind of porn legacy, as it were, of Chaucer is actually via Pasolini. Right, yeah, So yeah, Pasolini, Pasolini, as I mentioned, made these films, The Trilogy of Life, and and I've got to say, they're no holds barred, mm. you know. So particularly in um, in his uh, Decameron, you know, you're getting full frontal erections, and it's it's pretty it's a pretty um, out there film mm. in terms of its sexual content. Um, and basically, these films, even though I think they're very serious films, and and you know, Pasolini was an intellectual, and even though he was very very interested in sex, he had an intellectual and a historical interest mm. in sex, and he approaches these films really intelligently, but also very um, graphically, mm. and there is uncomfortable sexual content in there too, by which I mean some very young actors, right? Okay, and that was something that kind of came to trouble him later on and he recanted the entire trilogy oh wow oh yeah okay. he completely recanted it yeah. yeah by 1975 well actually i think even earlier he had renounced the right. trilogy of life and felt like he had been incredibly utopian and naive about okay. the idea yeah. of sexuality in it and also the kind of the bodies that mm. he was using in those films and he uh but nevertheless even though he came to reconsider them and maybe part of him coming to reconsider their um, in what his intent was and what they ended up doing was that there was this whole porn afterlife. And you can find that Kevin Harty is a, a, is a medievalist who's done a book called The Real Middle Ages that sort of tracks, you know, the, the representation of the Middle Ages in film. And he has a section in there on all of these um, basically pornographic films that were made mm. um, in the kind of afterlife of Pasolini's films, as it were. And so, um, and so these... Um, medieval films that Pasolini made that had this sexual content led to this kind of um, obscene afterlife of Chaucer. And there's a, there's an American scholar whose work I really enjoy called George Shuffleton, and he's written quite a bit on obscene Chaucer, uh, including um, a, a great essay he wrote a couple of years ago on um, a sort of an American porn actress who decided to make, you know, the bawdy tales of Canterbury. And, um, oh, <laughs> and so there was that kind of sense in which I think you know, when you teach Chaucer, it's very, very tempting to just start with the Miller's Tale or yeah. the Merchant's Tale because they've got, you know, people having sex in trees and people <laughs> farting out of windows and sticking Dedicating hot pokers them, yeah, up people's no. backsides <laughs> and all sorts of, you yeah. know, quite sort of um, scatological um, kind of bawdy content. Um, but I guess, you know, as tempting as that is, I think, you know, it is important to always kind of set it in the context of, of um, 
you know, the, the other more serious or, you know, kind of less bawdy text. But that bawdy Chaucer has been very much a part of uh, a certain afterlife of Chaucer. So, Isn't that interesting? Because kind of, I've yeah. been trying to track down a, this is this is a very strange sentence, um, a Henry VIII porn. Because um, I'm doing some oh, the work Tudors on... Tudors is close. I'm doing a, a, yeah, that's <laughs> true. I'm doing show. some work on the afterlife of the Tudors. And um, there was in the 70s a... Um, Henry VIII porn in which he dies from basically having too much too sex. much sex of course right and that seems to me and that the fact that it was made in the seventies seems to me to be related to that kind of impulse to make the medieval porn um, yes yeah I mean the Tudors isn't sort of sits on the end of you know medieval but it, I think it's coming out of that same impulse I, I definitely yeah. and I think that there is that kind of sense of continuity really yeah. into the Tudor period I yeah. think in that kind of perception of bawdy times you know where yeah. people kind of ripped off a turkey leg yeah that's and, right and you know that, that and... famous um the, the Henry VIII in the in the 30s where he rips off the turkey you know and absolutely just trails down on it it's something know? that people associate I think it's a period that people associate and when I say a period here I am talking about a kind of a fairly amorphous yeah that's right um perception of a kind of late medieval blending into so early modern, yeah. um, early modern kind of period of appetite yeah and henry the eighth is the embodiment of appetite, appetite. you know yeah. um Women, because we food. know that the yeah. reason he had all those wives was very was was, was, yeah. was very much driven by dynastic yeah. and, and and even kind of a sense of religious and and um kind of regal duty mm-hmm. but nevertheless we depict we picture it as having involving a lot of Someone had sex. If sex, not him, then certainly yeah. you know someone was someone was eating a lot of. Yeah. And of course, we do have those um, records of what his of what Henry VIII's um, banquets mm. involved, and it was pretty a lot of hardcore. Food. There yeah. was a lot of food, a lot of and meat, a lot of birds dying. Yeah. Of, so, so I think that the, there is. I think that, the, and I think that there is a continuity yeah. in that kind of perception of. Chaucer body and Tudor body and, uh, you know, and a lot of kind of unlaced bodices and, Mm. you know, and, and, and I guess, you know, there are, in, when you think about um, the Canterbury Tales, you know the the, the beginning section, say, of the um, Pardoner's Tale. The Pardoner's Tale takes a very, very, very dark turn, but it starts with these kind of young guys in the tavern, and and um, when Pasolini does his version of it, again, he just shows people from what all intents and purposes looks like having sex mm. you know so and 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 basically urinating off balconies and stuff so he he actualizes mm. what's implied and i think that that just captures a certain kind of imagination and we are talking about an uptake with 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 somebody like pasolini um pasolini was by no means a kind of unthinking purveyor of like you know sexual liberation in that kind of you know unthinking sense but um He's part of that larger kind of libertarian impulse, you know, of the late 60s and 70s. And so you can see why that that period might have involved a certain kind of interest in the body. Mm, you absolutely. Know, the, the medieval and the early modernist body. Yeah. All right, so moving to more that's, – that's, that was fantastic. Um, I love that. that, that was you know, I could talk for days about body chores. I can talk a lot about Henry VIII porn if you yes, want, but let's not yeah, go yeah. there. Um, so let's talk about something more recent, um, mm. and I'm thinking of A Knight's Tale, yeah. um, which is, to me, one of the most delightful – um, representations of Chaucer. So yes. Chaucer is this kind of like the dude that ramps the crowd up. 
yes. um, before a before a wrestling match or a, or a um, yeah. yeah, he's the the one that gets the crowd going. It's such a delight. It's a fantastic portrait of Chaucer, and and many frequently naked. love it. Yes, medievalists <laughs> love Paul Bettany as Chaucer Sorry. there, and because it's a kind of like we get the Chaucer of the portrait is a long portraiture tradition of Chaucer, and I've written something about that fairly recently. Um, and it's the kind of it's the portrait of Chaucer that's the kind of bearded, yeah, you know, Serious. eminence, yeah. and um, and he's you know he's kind of in his three quarter pose, and we only see the kind of upper part of his body. Although there is actually that's not quite true. There is also a full body portraiture tradition, but the the Chaucer that we see is the kind of the the hooded, bearded, old. Chaucer. Very serious. And what mm. we get with Paul Bettany in um, in A Knight's Tale, which is just, I, I really enjoy A Knight's Tale. It's just everything, every uh, anachronism. It's, it's so joyfully anachronistic that it's it would be ridiculous to sit there picking yeah. faults in it, you know. And so it starts with the Chaucer. He mentions he's written the Book of the Duchess, so we know it's like kind of, a, it's, it's you know, it's a late 1360s yeah. Chaucer, if we're going to even attempt to pin it down into yeah. anything resembling Chaucer's This is Chaucer's where the crowd like, starts singing Queen songs. And so, that's yeah. exactly right. So, yeah, they're singing We Will Rock You, Cute. so we're yeah. really not going to get too concerned no. with whether this fits into Chaucer's actual kind yeah. of documented biography. But he's, so he's lost all his clothes through gambling and he's... Um, wandering the and fields he's wandering naked. The, yeah, he's wandering uh, the fields naked and covered in kind of smear or shit or something, <laughs> yeah. you know. He's kind of, he's looking pretty grimy. And he's just this kind of ne'er-do-well chancer kind yeah. of figure who gets in into um oh now is he william of Liechtenstein? i'm trying to remember what um oh, I can't remember what, what um Heath, Ledger. uh, Heath ledger's knights uh he gets into his retinue and he becomes the kind of warm-up guy yeah. who gets the crowd going and get the crowd kind of, revved up you know yeah. and, and it's fantastic because as the as the film goes on he sort of starts uh, he introduces him and eat Ulrich of Liechtenstein, I think he's called. And each time he introduces him, he's called William Thatcher is his real name, and he goes under the name Ulrich of Liechtenstein as a knight. And every time Chaucer introduces this figure, it just gets longer and more <laughs> elaborate, and this whole kind of introduction of him becomes kind of comically sort of over the top and lengthy. And, and the more he does it, the audience just love it, you know. And so he's... Um, he, it's just such a joyful representation of him, and it's just not a Chaucer we've seen before, but it's a Chaucer we're completely ready to have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you he's know, great. he's the guy that's like, are you ready well, to rumble? You know? And the thing that's so fantastic at the end of it, and I've actually written an essay on um, yeah. on the knight's, on A Knight's Tale because that's the thing. It's not The Knight's the Tale like in the Canterbury Tales. It's A Knight's Tale. tale. Yeah. But the thing that's so great at the end of it is when after the whole sort of story is resolved and um, – Ulrich is now actual William William Thatcher's actually now become a knight. You know, um, you have Chaucer, the Chaucer figure, turn around and say, "I think I might write all this down." You know, and so the film—it's such a clever thing where the film has Chaucer as a character, but then the film presents itself as the origin yeah. of, of Chaucer's the, text. Yeah. You know, because Chaucer hasn't written the Canterbury Tales yet. Yeah, and um, and so in in the in the uh, film he hasn't written the Canterbury Tales yet, but. The film presents itself as the origin of the Canterbury Tales, which is so brilliant. You yeah. Know? So there's this kind of fantastic, playful yeah. looping of time and anachronism. It's it's a really sweet film. I love that I love film. It. I think yeah. it's I've taught that before actually, and students just love it. They love yeah. it, and it's just I, I think the first time I watched it, I wasn't so sure because I and, and there are things about it that it's a film that's about making your own stars, and there's a kind yeah. of the 
Nike contem- armor. Yeah, yeah. And so it's very much... It, it's a, not a very contemporary, is, like, make your own destiny. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's a very kind of individualist kind of story yeah. of, you know, making your own destiny and all that sort of stuff. And there's a kind of, you know, so it, it sort of wears a certain kind of um, contemporary, dare I say, sort of American ideology on its sleeve a little bit. But, a little bit but, neoliberal, but, perhaps. But yeah. it's so playful as <laughs> yeah. a film that, that in yeah. the end, I think that kind of enjoyment that it has in in anachronism and mm. mind bending you know us around the question of literary origin i mm. think to me is the thing that that i think we can't get too hung up on its cultural yeah. politics you mm. know and 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 we i think we miss the humor a bit if we do that yeah i agree yeah. i think it's delightful yeah. now the most um i wanted to finish up by talking about the probably the most um contemporary chaucer um representation which is the chaucer the tweets Oh right, okay. So Chaucer I know does tweet. I know him quite well. Yes, <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if you could comment on on Chaucer's blog and Chaucer's tweeting. Oh, he's quite a prolific tweeter, despite having been dead since, for some hundreds of years. Yes, <laughs> yes, he has. It's amazing. He's amazing. Kind of, he yeah. seems to be kind of channeling through the yes. figure of Brantley Bryant of Sonoma State University. <laughs> he's a brilliantly funny man, you know. Um, and he and such a modest man too. So he would probably kind of. Blanche at me saying some of these things but so he started by having his Geoffrey Chaucer hath a blog and and he does some fantastic things with that where he um, will often just um, so you know Chaucer was known as I was mentioning before with the Canterbury Tales as a bit of a satirist on his own time a commentator on his own time and and um, even though as I've said he's a troubling figure and he and he has all sorts of modes of complicity in his culture as well as being a satirist and a critic of it um, basically the the um, Chaucer tweets and the Chaucer blog were about kind of offering little forms of commentary, often just lighthearted commentary, but sometimes also more serious commentary on contemporary culture in the language of Chaucer. And he's really good at doing it. You know, I sort of envy his facility for being able to write plausible Chaucerian kind of prose um, and making these sorts of very amusing comments about all kinds of contemporary affairs. And sometimes he'll even do the, one of my favorite posts when he, back when he used to do Geoffrey Chaucer hath a blog was when he wrote about going to medieval conferences, you know, kind of, and sort of telling what, you know, what it was like to be at the conference all in this kind of, you know, cod medieval um, cod Chaucerian language that he would write in. And, and there was just that kind of, it's that really clever thing that I think anachronism, the, the, mm. the pleasure in anachronism is always when you have something that's kind of making enough of a gesture toward the past that it feels it's sort of strange to you, but then there's enough familiarity in it. So mm. you kind of enjoy this sort of time traveling experience of somebody writing something in a language that's that's of another time but writing about things that you recognize and um i know that um when stephanie trigg from university of melbourne came to mm. to macquarie and gave us that lovely talk on and on the on jeffrey chaucer had the blog and the tweets and that moment when he's talking about you know carly ray jepson song or <laughs> yeah. something you know and kind of um mentioning kind of contemporary um, pop songs in the language of chaucer and it's just that kind of lord again, is the most of, medieval oh, that's of, it was yeah. lord it wasn't lord carly is, ray jepson was it it was, it was lord. lord is the most medieval lord. of um of, of singers course. because she's got the e at the end <laughs> that's it she's it's the final e i yeah. know what could be more middle english, english than lord's but, final e yeah um, and so that's right. It was Lord, wasn't it? Yeah. Get Carly Rae Jepsen from anyway. Maybe he, he, maybe did, he did, did call me baby with an E. Oh, no, I think <laughs> you know? he, he also yeah. referenced maybe yeah, that, that Friday song, you know, that Thursday yes. come yeah, after, yeah, yeah. You, you know, comes before Friday, Friday. with all the E's. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's, I think there's just, um, again, that kind of pleasure. 
I think I think that's the thing with Chaucer, and it comes back to so much of you know this this kind of push and pull in any kind of afterlife of a medieval figure, which is that sense in which we take pleasure in their strangeness and their remoteness and their kind of how distant they are from us historically, but also that sense of the kind of freshness and immediacy mm. that we discover in, you know, and I'm not sort of wanting to say humans are just this kind of unchanging thing and we just find ourselves mm. unchanged when we look at medieval texts, but there is those kinds of glimpses into continuity. Yeah, that's right. At the same time as we see incredible it's, difference. And yeah. I think it's what certainly draws me back into looking at medieval literature, but also in looking, which is my main area of research, is looking into the afterlife of medieval literature and what brings people back to it and what mm. people keep finding in it and how people keep reanimating it and making it kind of relevant and um, intelligible to themselves mm. in later periods. And I think Chaucer has had this extraordinary afterlife because, well, certainly because of the size of his corpus. You know, he wrote so much stuff, but also I think... Um, because there is so much complexity already in the text that people continue to find new things in, in them. And, you know, there's a really big, you know, um, televisual response to Chaucer and cinematic one, you know, and so um, people keep finding new things in him, I think. I think that is a beautiful place to to um, finish our conversation, Louise. Thank you so much. Oh, it's pleasure. been wonderful. Um, Chaucer's tweet my favourite Twitter stream oh, yeah. on the internet. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And he's even had some likes from J.K. Rowling. He's had so, some likes you know, from J.K. Rowling. So he has been truly blessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, they're wonderful, wonderful tweets. Yeah. Thank you so much, Louise. Pleasure. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I will remember your um, recommendations to look at Chaucer Porn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I recommended... <laughs> Look thinking about Bill Bailey. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, all right, thank you so much. Um, so we'll be back again in two weeks. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very, very useful. Um, if you've got any suggestions for future episodes or feedback that you want to give us, you can drop us a line at fromthelighthouse.org. Just look for the contact page. Um, see you again in two weeks. Bye.